Once again, uh, yeah, if you don't know me, my name's Andy. I'm one of the associate pastors here, and I'm so thankful uh, to have this opportunity to share with you in looking to God's Word together. When I was in college, uh, I had a theology professor who loved to challenge his students' assumptions. He wanted to make sure uh, that we believed, that we knew truly what we really believed. He had a phrase that he would say all the time uh, to do this that stuck with me, and it echoes in my head all the time when I hear people using the same word or phrase over and over again. It was a quote from that famous philosopher, Inigo Montoya. My professor would look at a student right in the eyes and say, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Today, we are continuing in a series called, What Do We Mean?, where we are reflecting on phrases that we don't always take time to define in a sermon. And the question before us today is around a word that we use constantly in the church. What do we mean when we say worship? How do you use the word worship? When we use the word here at the bridge, when we say it from up here on stage, Are we all picturing the same thing? Honestly, most of the time, I don't think we use the word incorrectly. But I do think that our idea of worship is usually too small. Something I really love to do is uh, go for walks around my neighborhood. Uh, On a given day when the weather is all right, you could easily find me just walking around the neighborhood, probably listening to a podcast and just wandering around, kind of deciding my route uh, as I go. And one day, as I was on a walk in a part of the neighborhood I hadn't already uh, been to before, I saw an open gate uh, in, just in the middle of this neighborhood with houses along the street. I saw this open gate with a sign that marked it as an entrance to a forest preserve. I assumed this must be a really small forest preserve because I didn't know there was anything like that in this area but I decided to walk in and check it out. As I entered, it opened up into what felt to me like this enormous open landscape. The path led down this hill and then back up another hill, and there were paths that uh, split off in all these different directions, marked out that led into the woods, and paths that brought you along streams of water with arched wooden bridges over them, and there were trees and wildflowers all around. It was that time of day when uh, the sun is just about to set so everything feels like it's gold. It's not like I hadn't been to a forest preserve before, but the sheer surprise at discovering something like this on a whim where it felt like it had been just right under my nose the whole time just blew me away. I was walking around kind of feeling like I needed to throw up my hands to no one in particular and say, did you know that this was here? The whole time? Today, as we look at what worship means together, I want you to imagine that we're all standing at that gate together. There is beauty and wonder and so much more than we often think about when we use the word worship. So we're standing at that gate and I'm asking, did you know that 
this was here the whole time? Let's not settle for a small view of the abundance of what God has for us. Worship is much more than we've made it out to be. Before we explore God's word together, would you join me in prayer once again? Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we are aware of our need for you to speak. We long to engage with you, to learn from you, to get a glimpse of your glory. Lord, quiet the distractions that might hinder us from growing closer to you in this time. Move our hearts to long for more of you. Mold us to reflect your love and goodness into this world. We love you. We look to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible with you or any way to access the Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Romans 12. We're going to be starting in verse 1. And now, typically in our sermons, uh, we usually kind of focus on one passage for the length of the sermon time. But with this message, we're going to be doing something slightly different. Romans 12, 1 to 2 will be our central passage but we're going to use it as kind of a launching pad to explore some other places in Scripture that also talk about worship. And this is because I want us to see something of the scope of what the Bible says about worship, not just one particular uh, passage or verse. But before we do anything, I just need to issue a disclaimer. I am sorry, but we will not cover everything today. There is so much more that could be said about worship and what I will have time for today. But my hope is that by the end of this service, all of us will have a bigger view of what worship means than when we first began. So with that in mind, let's look at Romans 12, 1 to 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In these two verses, we can glean two principles about the nature of worship. What you do with your life is worship. And what you worship will form you. Let's look at that first point first. What you do with your life is worship. These verses come at a turning point in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. The word therefore at the beginning of verse 1 is Paul's way of basically saying, in light of everything else I've said so far in this letter about the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done to bring you from death to life, Therefore, worship in this way. Present your life to God. Paul wants the believers in Rome to live their lives in a way that glorifies God and reflects what Christ has done. By talking about worship here, he's drawing on his hearers' expectations of what proper worship would normally require, which is a sacrifice of some kind. In order to draw near to God, or uh, for the pagan listeners, to appease a God, a sacrifice of some kind was usually necessary. 
And as Paul says this, his words help us to see a dividing line between the worship of God's people throughout all generations before Christ and the worship that is now possible by Christ's death and resurrection. In the opening chapters of Genesis, God and humanity communed together in the world that God created for such communion. Things were as they ought to be. Humanity was meant to engage with its creator. But with the fall and humanity's choice to sin, humanity needed God to now provide a way for them to engage with him properly. When God selected a people through whom to bless the nations and make himself known, the people of Israel, it was only through his provision of rescuing them from slavery and revealing his character to them that they could rightly then respond to him in worship. Even when God established his covenant with Israel and made his presence to dwell with his people in the tabernacle and later the temple, because of the people's sin, God had to provide the means for them to rightly engage with him, which involved the practice of sacrifice. Therefore, in Romans, Paul spends 11 chapters showing how both Jew and Gentile alike have failed in their efforts to serve God appropriately. And yet, God, in his incredible love and grace, sent his son as the ultimate provision through which his people could then engage with him. Christ's perfect sacrifice makes it possible for us to draw near with confidence. We can draw near to praise our God and lay down our lives before him without fear of condemnation because he has paid the ultimate price to bring us in. In this way, Christ is the fulfillment of a pattern we see throughout all of history. Our worship, our engagement and communion with God is made possible because of God's action on our behalf. This is crucial for understanding worship. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. We can picture worship like a conversation, a dialogue between us and God, which God invites us into. This is why Christian worship must have Christ at its center, since Christ's work on our behalf invites us to directly worship God in spirit and in truth, not tied to a particular time or place. God's action on our behalf makes this sort of worship possible. When we have a call to worship at the beginning of a service, we read scripture to communicate the truth that I'm talking about here. Whenever we come together to worship God, we look to God's word to remind ourselves that he is the one who gathers us and makes all that we do possible. And then we respond. Because of Christ's sacrifice, Paul says that now the most fitting response is to lay down our lives before God. He calls this a living sacrifice. It has often been said about this passage that the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps trying to crawl off the altar. And when I think about my own heart, I know that that is absolutely true. Every day we have a choice before us of how we will live. And here's the tricky thing about worship. We're always worshiping something. 
Our hearts are always searching for something to satisfy us. That's why the theologian John Calvin used a phrase, idol factories, when describing our hearts. As I was putting together this sermon, I was constantly being made aware of the idols my heart was making each day. Sometimes I worship my own comfort. Sometimes I worship my phone. Sometimes when I'm speaking in front of lots of people, I worship the image of me that those people might have in their heads. Sometimes I worship a celebrity. Sometimes I worship a pastor. Sometimes I worship myself when I should be caring for others. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that someone else can relate to what I'm saying. We are prone to pulling ourselves off the altar as we lay our lives down. But scripture tells us that it is exactly when we lay down our lives that we find life in its truest form and abundance. Paul gives us a paradox. Our proper worship is a process of becoming a living, dying person. And so we lean on the Lord to renew and shape us to do this well. Which leads us right into verse 2 and what it tells us about worship. What you worship will form you. We naturally tend to take the shape of that which we worship. We have a choice about what will shape us. Will we be conformed to, as Paul puts it, the ways of the world? Or will we direct our hearts to the God who has our best interest in mind? Worship of the one true God must be the central practice of our lives. If we are always worshiping, we need to train ourselves to direct the compasses of our hearts back to the true north of our creator. We need to lay down our whole selves before God, and we also need to rely on his transforming power to then shape us. That is what it means to live a life of worship which will honor and please God. So bearing in mind the principles of the nature of worship that we see in Romans 12, let's now take some time to consider what else uh, about worship we can see throughout Scripture. The following kind of remaining sections of this sermon are what I'm calling four snapshots of the scope of worship in the Bible. And with each of these, we're going to be reminded that worship is much more than we often make it out to be. The first thing is that worship is more than music. So, from the way many people use the word worship today, you could be excused for thinking it just means music. And there are lots of reasons for this. There are people with jobs like worship leader, who primarily focus on crafting and leading music. And that's great. There is also a huge industry uh, in worship music in which artists release records and tour and sell out stadiums with merch tables where people come and worship together. And that can also be great. When you leave today, you can turn on the radio and there will be multiple stations that you can find that will greet you with a radio host encouraging you to worship now with the latest hit song. And that can also be great, too. 
But I hope that the first half of this sermon has set you to look at all of those examples and see that they only tell part of the story. Worship is so much more than music. So where did we get the idea that music is so important in worship? Well, to start, we see lots of singing in Scripture. When the Israelites were rescued from Egypt by Yahweh, they responded with a song, singing, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. In various books throughout the Old Testament, we see the command to sing to the Lord in response to what he has done. Do you remember all the way back to the beginning of the service? It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. We also find that in the New Testament, singing is an appropriate response to God for what he has done in Christ. In Colossians 3, 16 to 17, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As believers in Christ, we are to cling to the teaching of Christ, to receive the gospel and build one another up, and to do all of these things in conjunction with singing. When we sing in church, we don't do it to just fill time. We also don't do it just because it's what we've always done. We also don't do it even just because we really actually like all the songs that Chris Tomlin keeps releasing year after year. It would be enough to say that we sing because we see in Scripture instructions to sing. But do you see what the text says? Singing is related to letting the word of Christ dwell in us and how we teach and admonish one another. Singing is part of how the body of Christ builds itself up in love. Singing is a form of responding to God that we can participate in together simultaneously. Singing is a way of declaring and reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel. Singing is a gift for these reasons and many more, and yet worship is still more than just singing. In verse 17, Paul summarizes what he has been saying to these believers in the previous verses by stating, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Once again, all of life is worship. So if worship is more than singing, what are we supposed to take away from this snapshot of scripture? What does it matter? Well, it matters because worship is something that we should be practicing together. When we sing together, we do it because we are linked as part of the body of Christ, and that is one way we build one another up. 
Do you remember the first time hearing other people in the church singing out songs after doing online services for COVID? That was a really powerful moment for me. It matters to hear other believers singing the same truths together. In fact, it's an essential part of how we can build one another up in the church. The command to sing in scripture also matters because it reminds us of the transformative power of art. Have you ever heard a biblical truth expressed through a song or drama or another piece of artwork that suddenly made it make sense to you in a way that you never had before? I'll phrase that in a different way. Have you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? I see the joy of the resurrection in a different way when I think about Aslan laughing and dancing with Susan and Lucy. On top of all this, the Bible itself is filled with poetry and artistically crafted story structures and dialogue and wordplay and so much more. Art and creativity help us to engage with God in ways that simply hearing a truth doesn't always accomplish. So when we sing or when we pray or when we create art or we simply enjoy it, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Next, we also see that worship is more than my individual experience. In my final semester of college, I was required to put together a research paper about a topic within the study of worship arts. It was a pretty open-ended assignment, so it was tough to nail down a topic, but eventually I settled on the subject, the dangers of individualism in worship. And whenever I told other people what I was working on, my classmates, it was pretty much always met with at least a degree of confusion. People would ask, like, what do you mean? Are you saying it's bad to have an individual experience with God? And what I tried to share in my paper then, and what I hope to share with you in this point, is that individualism is simply so baked into the culture in America that we tend to think that it's always virtuous. And this is reflected in how we typically think Of worship. So what does it look like? Like what am I actually talking about when we especially favor individualism in worship? I'll give some examples of how I have done this. This can look like when I come to church primarily thinking about what I'm going to get out of this time. It looks like when I begin to think that I could just replace church with reading a really thoughtful Christian book or listening to a sermon on a podcast. It looks like when I say, worship was great today because they played my favorite song and I just really liked how it sounded. In all of these instances, I'm prioritizing my individual thoughts, my individual experience, rather than thinking about anyone else in that equation. In 1 Corinthians 14, we see Paul in the midst of instructing the Corinthians about how they ought to worship together. If you remember last week, Mark talked about a passage two chapters earlier 
in this letter where Paul was stressing the importance of the gifts of every member of the body. Paul builds on that imagery here. Verse 26 reads, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Paul was speaking into a situation in which people in the church were doing things that only served themselves. He was addressing a group of believers who needed to hear that when they gathered together, their focus needed to be on building one another up, not themselves. He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. These are gifts that each person has that they are bringing to the gathered church. Everyone brings something unique, and yet everything that we bring to the gathering must be done to build up the body. So here's the challenge. When you come to this building, or when you come to a small group or a Bible study, uh, when you come to gather with other believers, are you only thinking about what you are going to get out of that time? Or are you thinking at all about what you are uniquely able to bring to that place? I want to acknowledge, as I'm saying all of this, that sometimes just getting through the door is enough. Sometimes we need to receive for a while before we can give anything. And that should be welcomed with open arms in the church. We should be lifting each other up. But the goal in the end is that each member of the body would be able to exercise the ways that God has gifted them. It is a gift to be able to serve others for the benefit of one another. Our our culture tends to place an incredible value on individual experience. The church should be a counterbalance to that as we place one another's needs above our own. We should be engaging with God individually as we gather, but it can't be only that. There is a vertical dimension of our worship, you know, me and God, but there is also a horizontal dimension where we build one another up, where we sing so that others are encouraged, so that we uh, read scripture, that we encourage one another, admonish one another during this time. Coming to a worship service should feel much less like going to a movie theater and much more like coming to a potluck. We are all here to serve one another and build each other up. That time during the service where we take a couple minutes to greet one another, worship hasn't like ended there. It actually continues through the whole time. Everything we do can be an act of worship to our God. Worship is much more than what you or I are individually experiencing. We also see that worship is more than praise. If we did limit ourselves to thinking of worship as just music for a second, if we just did a thought experiment and decided that we were only going to look at the places in Scripture where we see songs appear in some way, Do you know what we would find? 
we would find a whole lot of songs that look absolutely nothing like the songs we sing today. There are songs that tell the stories of Israel's struggles, songs that cry out to God for help, songs that prophetically challenge their hearers, songs that are, quite frankly, difficult to look at. Yet all of these have something in common, their posture. I'm not talking about like the actual physical posture of the bodies of the people who wrote these. I'm talking about the postures of their hearts. They are fixed on God. They refuse to turn away from him. Take, for example, the presence of laments in Scripture. The book of Psalms is filled with laments. It is full of expressions of worship that go from praising God to then saying, but how long, O Lord? There aren't a lot of laments being written for the contemporary worship music industry. We might have a verse where we acknowledge that sometimes we're sad, but usually by the chorus we're feeling great again. What do we lose when we have no space in our worship for lament? In his book, Prophetic Lament, Sung Chan Ra says this. He says, The American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized and the underlying narrative of suffering that requires lament is lost. The absence of lament in the liturgy of the American church results in the loss of memory. We forget the necessity of lamenting over suffering and pain. We forget the reality of suffering and pain. When we only turn to God in praise, when we equate worship with only victorious celebration, that forms our hearts. It forms our hearts to neglect the reality of pain and suffering in the world. We create habits of worship that do not equip us to deal with difficult times. When we see suffering in the world, do we immediately respond with praise because God is always good? And he is always good. Or do we have any space at all in our vocabulary of worship to lament and weep with those who weep? Do we cry out to God asking him for justice to be done? Do we call out for comfort for those who mourn? I picked Psalm 42 for this snapshot because it's a lament that looks forward to a day when lamenting will turn to praise. Ultimately, we know, we live in an era where we know that the brokenness of this world will one day be put right. But today, we focus our hearts on God in the midst of the reality of war, of sickness, and death. The psalmist writes as someone who longs to go to the temple, but for whatever reason, cannot. They are in turmoil, feeling cast off and put down and even forgotten by God. Yet even as they call out, they do not turn away from their creator. I'm going to actually take a minute to read the full psalm for us. And as I do, I want to invite you to read aloud with me. It'll be up on the screens the portions that are bolded and underlined. And as we engage with God through this, I want to encourage you to hold in your mind the reality of pain and suffering in the world. Focus on something in your own life or a situation involving someone else's 
suffering. Pray these words for yourself or on behalf of those that God puts on your heart during this time. Let's read this together and again, join me for those phrases. There's just a few of them, but the phrases that are bolded and underlined on the screens. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We can bring the full range of our emotions to God in worship. There is nothing that we could say that would ever surprise him. The question is, are you willing to engage with him with whatever you're feeling? It can be easy to assume worship is only praise when we feel like that's all we're allowed to actually do in worship. But if all of life is worship, that includes the difficult parts. God desires for us to come to him with whatever we are going through, even as we long for the day when we will have nothing more to lament and only praise to sing. Finally, worship is more than what we see today. When we worship, when we engage and commune with God, we are participating in a heavenly reality. In Revelation 4, we get to see a snapshot of the ongoing worship that takes place before the throne of God. In verses 9 through 11, we read, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy of all praise and honor. This is constantly being acknowledged and celebrated in heaven right now. When we focus our hearts on God, we are joining in with that eternal practice 
of worship. This is part of what it means for us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we worship God, a heavenly reality invades this fallen world through God's people. As we worship, our minds and hearts are continually shaped to bring about his will on earth as it is done in heaven already. The other side of this point, this snapshot that I want us to grasp, and this will be the conclusion for this message, is that worship is also more than what we see in this present day. What I mean by that is that when we worship the living God, we do so surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses around the world from generations past and present and beyond us. When we echo the words of Scripture singing things like, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, we echo countless worshipers who have sung those same words, whether they're in English or not. And all of us worshipers do so in anticipation of the day when the heavenly reality of constant worship and communion with God will be brought down to earth. When Jesus is revealed as the true king reclaiming his creation and bringing in its fullness the kingdom which we had been participating in all along and all things are made new again by the God who made them in the first place. Our worship today should create a longing in us for that day. As we respond to God's word together with songs or prayers, with quiet times of devotion, or communal times of praise, with a meal shared around a table, or a piece of art crafted to reflect the Creator's glory, we are participating in a kingdom that is both now and also coming soon. As we live in the time between Christ's resurrection and our own, our worship today should stir in us a longing for the unhindered communion we will have with our Creator when He wipes every tear from our eyes. Christ is at the center of our worship because, again, all of this has been made possible through him. Let's thank God together. Would you join me once again in prayer? Almighty God, we thank you and we praise you for what you tell us through your word. You are holy and perfect, matchless in all your ways, the Lord and judge of all the earth. And yet you made yourself known through humility, coming in the form of a servant and dying in our place so that we might wear your righteousness and know your love forever. Lord, we are so humbled by the grace you have shown us. As we strive to worship you with our lives, Lord, enable us by your spirit to do so continually transform our hearts and minds to know and do your will. Let our lives be works of art crafted to communicate your beauty, especially as you take our broken parts and put them back together by your grace. Lord, we yearn to commune with you in the new creation that is coming, but today we are so glad to do so together in song. Meet with us as we sing today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.